going on, anesthesia nerds? This is your host, Tasha McNerney. We are going to talk to a fantastic guest today. I mean, I really don't even need to read her bio. As soon as I say the name Liz Houston, you're going to know that she is a badass technician who knows so many things. I mean, VTS internal medicine, VTS emergency and critical care. She is amazing at lecturing, at writing books, at writing articles, at getting involved on in, online, in all the forums. She's going to tell you how it should be done if you need to know anything internal medicine or emergency and critical care. Not only that, if you have you know, been living in the like random mountains and not had internet in a while, you might have noticed that she also is very involved in the cannabis discussion going on in our veterinary patients. She is so involved that she is, let me see, where is it on your bio? What are you, Liz? Oh, the co-founder of the Veterinary Cannabinoid Academy with one of our favorites, Mr. Steven Sattal. She practices as a relief veterinary technician, as a trainer. She lives in the San Francisco area, so if you at your clinic are like, man, I really wish somebody would come in here and show us the ropes for ECC, you could contact her. She will come to your clinic and show you how to be a badass. Um, but if not, we're going to talk today to Liz Houston, veterinary technician extraordinaire. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Thank you so much, Tasha. I am so excited to be here. And I mean, honestly, you are one of my heroes, a co-badass in veterinary medicine. I still, I still can't believe every time I see your name pop up in my contacts or in my Facebook feed, I can't believe I'm talking to the creator of the Domator music video oh, that uh, I loved so oh. much when I was a baby technician. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. And I just love that we have become friends and mutual veterinary technician badasses. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's not embarrassing in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually was, I was doing, I do relief work now for all you uh, guys out there listening. Um, I just do veterinary anesthesia relief work and education now and I was at a clinic doing some relief work and not kidding one of the texts was like I saw that music video we should show it today to everybody and I was like no no look over there oh let's look at the ventilator not that that's terrible (laughs) I mean the things you do when you are young and yeah oh it's fantastic I I mean do do not do not underplay the fantastic of that which I just loved it uh, I continue to love it it's uh, one of the one of the most remarkable things in vet med uh, for education even I it's, mean it's oh, funny man. it's cute it's, it's educational bad. I love it <laughs> <laughs> all right so speaking of yes. funny and educational let's talk yes. about your stuff and kind of what you have going on um Not only do I, you know, I got to know you on the emergency and critical care side. Um, For those of you guys listening, Liz has lectured at every major conference internationally. I mean, she is, when we think of emergency and critical care and the big names, uh, and when I was kind of coming up and getting my feet wet in this industry, I mean, I remember going to see David List, Liz Houston, Nancy Shafron. I mean, these were like the, like, oh my gosh, the Liz Houston is telling me how to treat this DKA. And I hope I never have to actually do it (laughs) because I want to be in the surgery room. (laughs) 
But yes, and that's why I love all the vet- veterinary anesthesia nerds because as um as I think most people who know me know, I hate anesthesia. So Listen. Uh, I rely on my nerds uh to a great extent and I love them and appreciate them, all of them. Yeah, it's totally fine. I mean, not everyone who comes in this show has to love anesthesia. That's fine. We have a lot of nerds for that. Again, we need to work together. You know, I That's need right. you to help me interpret the blood gas when for the 17th time I was like, <laughs> base excess, base excess. What does this freaking mean? I got to look it up again. <laughs> yes. And I, meanwhile, will be like, I don't remember the dose of ketamine for intraoperative <laughs> maintenance what should my cri be can you come and tell me why my patient won't stay asleep and just take over for me so i can go back yeah. to the ICU. and i will I take over i know fact, i love it yeah and i will take over because i would much rather be doing that lord help me you do not want me filling in in an icu shift <laughs> for just treatments and i'm like i don't what? Metronidazole? How long does that have to be given? What am I giving? Keppra? What's this used for? I don't know where I am. So, yeah. Yes. That's pretty. So it's good. We have all of these specialties that everyone can go into. Yes. And you know uh, what I love about that, Tasha, is the team aspect of veterinary medicine, right? Yeah. And I think that we don't talk enough about uh, everybody's contribution as part of a team. And I like to look at it as, um, you know, like I, I like to watch sports. I like football. I like professional basketball and those like professional basketball, particularly that's a sport that I look at and I look at how important it is to manage the talent you have on the team and put them in the best places and to take advantage of what you can from every member of the team. Um, I was watching the Warriors last night. I live in the Bay Area. That's like our team, right? And they're amazing. And they were way ahead. So what they call in basketball garbage time, right? At the end of the fourth quarter or halfway through the fourth quarter in this case. And they put in all the young kids, right? All the kids that they just brought up. And I looked at that and thought about how different the team looks when those kids are playing, but how the the veterans, the starters are watching them so closely to pick up things that they might use, right? Ways the plays are run or a certain kind of, you know, step back for a shot or a defensive move or anything. And then I think about the genius of the coach, right? Who makes these combinations of people to do the best things that they can. And how does a coach get to that point where they can do that? And they do that by observing their team, by listening to their team, by watching their team, what seeing what their team is doing. And granted, it takes a person who has that kind of vision to do that. But um, I think that's something that I would love to see more of in veterinary medicine. I think right now we see a lot of you're just a tech or you're just an assistant or, you know, you work in the ICU. Why would you? Why would I have you in rooms with patients Um, instead of evaluating people, looking at people and saying, what strengths do you bring to this team? And where could I use you in a way that maybe I hadn't thought of using you before? And that is something I think maybe that leads into what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Yeah, and I think that you're totally right. I was actually having this conversation with my husband. And for those of you who don't know, my husband also works in veterinary medicine. And we were talking about uh, 
specialty technicians and how a lot of people still don't understand how to fully, I mean, they don't understand how to fully utilize a regular technician, but they are still not really utilizing a VTS. I mean, a VTS thing. I'm just thinking we, we decided this now granted there was wine involved, (laughs) but we were like, if every clinic, I'm not talking about the specialty and emergency clinics. I'm talking every clinic, your GP down the road with the five doctors. If every clinic had a VTS ECC, Holy yeah. shit, they would run things so efficiently. Like they'd be in there. They could be the coaches for the techs. Hey, yeah. here's how we're going to like, you know, this is going to be the most efficient way to get this procedure done. Hey, we're right. going to do a thoracosynthesis. Here is the most efficient way to do this. And I'm going to put this person on it. And just right. being those little kind of um, maestros of everything. I think totally. specialty technicians can elevate the standard of care, not only in a specialty hospital, but a general practice. Think about a general practice, if they had a VTS and anesthesia, how much safer and more reliable their anesthetic experience would be. Yes. Maybe so many young baby techs wouldn't be afraid of anesthesia if they had a VTS anesthesia to guide them through the process. Yeah, or old crusty techs like me, you know, because yeah, anesthesia terrifies me. That's why I hate it, because it's terrifying. And I think that is such a good point. And I see more and more and more VTSs like you, right, going out working relief, going into these practices, not just specialty practices. I did a long relief stint at a general practice. And basically what I was doing, even though I hate anesthesia, was <laughs> surgery and anesthesia training, right? Because, because I knew because I came at it from the emergency side, because I've done a lot of anesthesia CE, because it does terrify me. So I feel like I should, the more I learn about it, the less terrifying it is, Um, which that's just a life lesson. Like if something terrifies you, learn more about it. It will become less terrifying over time. And, and then I'm able to go in and help them. And that was my role really was to help them with protocols, to help develop Um, to talk about using different drugs, maybe, than what they were using before, to talk about changes in the approach to anesthesia. Um, And that that's an amazing experience to have. And, And the way that that gets fostered, I think, as I say often, is culture comes from the top, right? So you really need a management structure, an ownership structure that is supportive of continuing education, and then expanding that education. So one of my other things that I do is I'm president of our of a union, a labor union for veterinary support workers. And we are negotiating a contract right now. And part of that contract it includes, you know, payment for CE. So when someone goes to CE, we want the company to pay for them to go to CE, a certain budget, blah, blah, blah. Lots of, comp- lots of, facilities have this as a benefit for their staff, right? Um, But what they included here was that people coming back from CE will be required to present something, a topic at a staff meeting. And I love that because, and I think every clinic should have that. Um, I think every clinic should require CE of every staff member, regardless of rank, level, title, whatever. Everybody should have to go to CE separate from, or, you know, part of, but separate from what may or may not be required by your state. So California, for example, if you're an RVT in California, you have to have 20 hours of CE every two years. But this this clinic where I was doing relief, 
they require that for all staff members regardless. So if you're an assistant, they expect you to have 20 hours of CE. Actually, I think they upped it to 20 hours a year. So they support that, right? Because it's part of their expectation. So then if you want to go to CE, they will pay for you to go to the CE. And then when you come back, they ask you to do a presentation on something you learned. Maybe it's Maybe you want to talk a little bit about every, every lecture you went to. Maybe you want to dive into one lecture that you went to. Maybe it's something that you want to see changed at the practice. Like you go and you learn, you go to one of Tasha's lectures and you learn all about the wonders of dexmedetomidine and you decide, you know, I think this would be really helpful to add to our, to our arsenal of anesthesia drugs. And um, how, how might we be able to do that? So I think it starts with, introducing the idea in a way like that, right? Like, hey, I learned this at a conference. If you have a practice that does that, that has regular staff meetings and has, you know, staff do presentations at staff meetings, which if you don't, like that would, that would be a place I would start (laughs) Uh, because it's great. It is so great. And staff members, you know, some staff members absolutely hate it because they're terrified to talk in front of people, but it's your, it's your people, it's your team. And Mm -hmm. so they're supportive. They want to learn from you. They want you to succeed. Like there's nothing to be scared of. It's not like going into a lecture hall full of a bunch of crusty old techs who are just looking for (laughs) every opportunity to jump on you if you say something wrong. But, um, but then that gives you an opportunity to not only show your higher ups that you're learning things, that you're committed to your career, that you're interested in learning new things, but it gives you that opening to then say, hey, so I learned this about dexmedetomidine and I presented it to the staff. Do you think we could try it in a patient next week? Like maybe we have a big healthy dog spay, right? A 10-month-old yellow lab, right, that we're going to spay. Maybe we could try it on her. Her blood work is perfect. Um, You know, she's super healthy. Maybe if you want beforehand, like we could do a pre-surgery ECG just to make sure to like make everybody feel really comfortable about this. And then maybe we could try it as part of her pre-med and see how the rest of her anesthesia goes. What do you think? Um, but you have to get that buy-in, right? And I think the way yeah. you get that buy-in is by showing your passion and your knowledge of the subject. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, Liz, you are a very experienced educator and I'm sure that you have people maybe this is what's happened to me. And I want to know if it's happened to you. And, and how do you approach, you know, what you tell people? Because sometimes they will come to me or they'll email me weeks after the presentation and they'll say, hey, I've been trying to get my doctors on board with this. For me, I'm not going to lie. It's a boxing or masking down. Like I, in this day and age, uh, in this day and age, with everything we know with anesthesia, with everything we know with staff exposure to waste gases, there's just no reason Um, that we need to be taking a cat, especially a fractious, terrified cat, and putting it into an ISO box or holding a mask on its face to mask it down. So they come to me and they say, I'm trying to change this. I know that I'm presenting evidence and I'm not getting any buy-in. What's your take on that when, when when you have technicians who want to raise the level of care and advocate for their patients, but they're getting pushback from either doctors or management or even other techs? Yeah, senior senior technicians, I've seen it often, yeah. right? And it is hard. And th- the thing that 
I try to remember is to not do it in the moment. I'm not always great at that, you know, because <laughs> I am. I come from the ECC world and it's all in the moment, right? Gotta do it mm-hmm. now. Ugh. But instead, I try to either think ahead, right? If I know I have a crusty cat coming in, not crusty, crunchy, mean, yeah. whatever, uh-huh. right? Like I know I have a cat and I don't want to say mean. I, I'm trying to work on my feline language. A scared cat, right? Yeah. So we know the cat's coming in. It's scared. It doesn't like to be handled by strangers. What can we do to help alleviate that? So I kind of work it backwards from there, right? I put myself in the place of the patient and think if I were the patient, what would I want? So if I were a cat, I would want to be left alone as much as possible. I would like to be, I would like to not see or hear other animals. I would like to be kept in a a place where I can hide. Okay, so I can set up that scenario for a cat that comes in. Now I'm talking about a planned procedure, obviously. So I can set up that scenario. I can have a cage that's covered. I can can put that cat in a place where it won't hear or see other animals. I can keep it dark. I can give it a hidey box or let it stay in its carrier, right? Mm -hmm. Then I think, okay, what is it, what's going to happen when we go to knock this cat down? And how, what, what is the safest and best way I can do that? And then I like to have that conversation with the, the clinician in charge or whoever it is, right? And I like to talk with them and say, okay, so you're going to spay this cat. This cat uh, is terrified. So could we try some sedation before we start messing with the cat and see what that response then is, right? So a lot of this too, Tasha, honestly, a lot of this is relationship building before you get to these moments, right? So it is important. It's hard as a newbie, as a new technician to a practice or a new assistant to a practice to make changes because nobody knows you, right? You don't have mm-hmm. that relationship. So that is a, that's a separate challenge. But if you are a person who has been working in a, in a practice, you have a good relationship with the people you work with, they trust you, they know you, you can go to the people that you work with. It's a team, right? And you go to them and say, hey, I think this might be easier on everyone if we tried a little sedation. I went to a CE a year and a half ago about kitty magic. And even if we can't like get an IM injection in the cat because they're so scared, we can't do that. I can squirt it in their mouth when they're hissing at me. I learned this in a lecture. I swear it'll work. Can we try it? Let's just try it and see if it doesn't work. We still have the box like that. I like to let people know, like the box is still an option, but let's try something else before we go there. Then every success you have will build on the previous success. And then you will get to the point where you find that box is gathering dust in the closet of the cat ward because you haven't had to use it in months and months because what you've been doing has worked consistently over time. The bad thing that happens is when something goes wrong, right? Because we know veterinarians are so risk averse. And I hear so many things from technicians who say things like, my doctor had a patient who died when after it got domator, and now they never want to use dexmedetomidine again. I'm not sure how we get over that situation. (laughs) Beyond having a culture and a practice of ongoing education and continuing education and learning, and then having management that's supportive of saying, hey, vets, 
we need to up our game in terms of anesthesia, pain management. We're going to send you to VMX. We're going to send you to Western. We're going to send you to IVEX. And we're going to require that the veterinarians have X number of hours in anesthesia and pain control. We're going to require that the technicians have X number of hours in wherever they feel like the technicians need to up their game in, right? But that's where management comes in. Mm -hmm. That's long-term. In the moment, in the moment, it is so hard to have these conversations. And what I try to remain focused on is my job as a patient advocate. My job is to advocate for my patients always. What is safest for them, what is going to cause them the least amount of psychological pain and physical pain. So how can I advocate for that? And that's the, that's the place where, that I come from when I have these discussions in the moment. You know, I, I try to pull it back. Can you see how scared this cat is? He's really scared. And I'm afraid if I put him in the box, he's going to get even more scared. You can get as technical as you feel comfortable with, right? I am comfortable having a conversation about cortisol release and catecholamines and how that's going to impact the overall anesthetic procedure in the moment and healing later. All of these things are detrimental going forward. You're going to have more complications. You're going to have more need for pain medication after if you don't take care of it before. But I'm comfortable having that level of discussion. But a newer technician or an assistant may not be comfortable having that level of discussion and may want to come at it from, hey, you know, this cat seems really scared and uncomfortable, and I would like to make the cat more comfortable because I think that will be an easier anesthesia for for you and for me monitoring it. So I think we might be able to smooth this out if we provided a gabapentin and wait two hours, do another procedure in the middle. Maybe that's the best you can get at that point in time. Or maybe we try this kitty magic thing I've been hearing so much about. Like, this is not a new thing, folks. This has been out for 20 plus years, this, I, this <laughs> combination of drugs. Uh, so maybe we could try that and then see how that goes and see if we can actually induce or maybe we don't even need an induction agent, depending on how we do this. Like, maybe we try that and see how that works. And that way... You know, if you if you're getting some feedback that this is a conversation the veterinarian is willing to have in this moment, right? You then you can segue a little bit into that way we don't have to worry about like exposing everybody to the, all of this waste anesthetic gas, which is not great, right? For any of us, I'll get a headache if it like if I open this box of ISO and it just gets in the room. Like this is not this is a hazard we need to be aware of. But that all depends on how the conversation is going in the moment, right? And I think that we probably, because we're both technicians, we're looking at this sometimes from a technician, usually like a technician approaching a doctor with something they've heard. But I hear it also from new veterinary grads or new associates. They get into a clinic. They've been taught in vet school these newer ways of doing things or, you know, newer anesthetic or even emergency and critical care procedure stuff. And they try to implement it and it doesn't go over well. At what yeah. point, you know, I think that there's just a lot of, I think there are a lot of opportunities right now, not only for veterinarians, but for technicians, because veterinarians and technicians are in really high demand. If you've continuously had that conversation, you know, if you're a new associate and you've continuously had that conversation with your other associates or your technician having that conversation with a veterinarian, 
if you feel like you're treading water, if you feel like you're not getting anywhere, you don't have the psychological safety within the culture of your clinic, at what point do you think you say, this might not be the clinic for me? That's such a good point. And I think that is across the board, right? From veterinarians all the way, uh, all the way to kennel workers, to groomers, to front, you know, ev- everyone in the practice. I think, again, as I said earlier, culture flows from the top, right? And if you aren't able to, if you don't feel respected, if you don't feel like people are listening to you, you need to find a place where those things are true. I think everybody is going to have their own um, pain points in terms of how much they can tolerate, how hard they want to push, how invested are they in that, that particular practice and for what reason, right? So that's going to be individual for everyone in terms of a time. Like, But I try not to make really rash decisions um, off the bat. So, you know, like the first time I get pushback on something wouldn't be like, well, fuck it, I'm leaving, I'm going to find another job, right? No. But, <laughs> but, but a wouldn't lot advise of it is, that. Yeah, but a lot of it is going to depend on your relationship with management, the, the structure of your practice. Is it owned by the person that you're talking to? Or is there a corporate structure that you need to engage with to create change, um, which may be possible, right? You, you may be able to talk to a regional training director to talk about your concerns or things that you want to change. And they may not have been aware that things were happening this way in the practice where you are. They could come in and provide that CE or bring people in to provide that CE and then monitor to make sure that things are going the way that that the corporation wants, right? Um, it may be that that the corporation is not supportive of those things, right? You may reach out higher up. You may reach out to the regional director or the medical director for your region or something like that and, and not get the response that you want. If that's the case, right? If you reach out and, and upper management isn't receptive, uh, they're not interested in change, um, then you're at a then you're at a point where you have to make the decision. So so for me as a VTS, right? I think a lot of folks know what they're getting when they hire a VTS. They know they're at least they know they're getting an advanced level technician, right? They don't know all that we know or all that we can do in most cases, but they're bringing on a VTS for for a reason, some reason. So that may be what you have to get to the heart at. Why did you bring in a new associate? Why did you hire someone right out of veterinary school? Is it because they're the only people you could get? Or were you hoping this was a person who could come in and bring new information, bring their new knowledge, and help improve care or change the way you're doing things? Sometimes management, hiring managers, practice managers, owners need a reminder of why this happens, right? We all get stuck in our ruts of things that we're comfortable with, that we're used to doing a certain way that we know works, right? Particularly in anesthesia. This is We've because always they pound done it, it this way. <laughs> but they do pound into <laughs> our heads, right? In tech school, that the safest anesthesia is the one that you are most comfortable with, right? The safest anesthesia Uh, the safest anesthetic drug is the one you are most familiar with, most experienced with. Okay, well then now you're telling me I have to change because it's safer for the patient, but I know also that I don't have experience with it. So that makes me really nervous. So we have to get over this huge hurdle 
of that nervousness, that rut, right? We have to kick people out of the rut. Sometimes, you know, in World War I, they used mustard gas to get people out of the trenches. That's what it took. Sometimes that's what it takes, right? But I prefer a softer approach <laughs> of finding those patients where you can try things on where the risk is low, right? So if you're in a specialty clinic, if you're in an emergency clinic, that's difficult. You're not going to have a lot of ASA ones and twos in your practice. But if you're in a general practice or a surgery practice, right, where you're seeing kind of all the across the gamut of potential patients, you can start with those patients of low risk. So when I was going for my VTS-ECC, for example, one of the skills that, we're, that we have to master is arterial catheter placement. And we didn't have a lot of cause for placing arterial catheters. We weren't a specialty hospital. We weren't doing, we did a lot of like emergency surgeries, but no one even thought about placing arterial catheters for those. We didn't have the setup to monitor invasive blood pressure. So it was like, what do we need that for? But this was a skill I needed to master. What I did is I talked to the folks in our practice that did orthopedic surgeries. These are young, healthy, big dogs, right? And I said, hey, could I try placing arterial catheters in these patients? Like while you're prepping them for surgery. So the non-surgery leg, the leg you're not doing the TPLO on, you can be hanging that up and prepping that. And if can I just try placing an arterial catheter? And you guys can keep it in for the duration of surgery if you want to check blood gases or you want to do anything like that. Or just let me place it, tape it in, you know, and then I'll take it out. And that is a way to kind of to kind of get your foot in the door, right? So you find these young, healthy patients, ASA1, ASA2. And that's where you reach out and say, could we try something a little different for the anesthesia for this patient? This patient's super healthy. Like we have almost no anesthetic risk beyond the normal anesthetic risk. Mm -hmm. And I would love to try alfaxalone to induce this patient instead of propofol. Could we try it and see how it goes? And then let me let me track what happens with that, right? And if and if it goes well with this patient, maybe next week we could try it on a couple of other patients and see how it goes with them. That's how you start, right? Then then maybe you add a block to that building where you're like, hey, I think maybe we should try line blocks for our space, or maybe we should be doing testicular blocks for our neuters. What do you think? I think it might make your anesthesia smoother. It may may be able to let us use lower gas. We might be able to use less pain medication overall. Um, they might wake up a lot more calm. Maybe they won't even lick their incision so much if we if we try this. Like, what do you think? Then it's your job to pick the patients where you're going to set yourself up for the most success. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I don't think that, you know, the patient that comes in hit by car that's crashing is like, hey, let me try this new... You know, you definitely have to pick your battles. And I and I don't want to ever discourage technicians either. Right. Or again, the new, the new <laughs> associates. I don't want you to discourage, but you do. It is a timing thing. And I agree uh, so much with what you said about it really is, a, it really depends on the culture of your hospital. So I think you have to look at, you know, especially for me, I've been in this career now 18 years. I know you have been it equally as long a time. I think that if you really want to have longevity in a career, you have to be continuously learning and you have to be at a clinic that is going to support that continuous learning and growth. That's right. Um, and if yeah. they don't, 
then yeah, yeah. maybe you do have to have that tough conversation of, yeah. is this the place for me? <laughs> right. And then I think it's, or you have to have the conversation with the, the decision makers of your practice to say, oh, yeah. hey, I always advocate to do that. Yeah. I mean, I would never just say to somebody like, oh, you know, this might not be the place for you look for another job right. until you've sat down with the team or the leadership team or your supervisor or whatever yeah. and said, here are my concerns. I know we could be doing better pain management, but I'm not getting anywhere. How can I go about this? If they're yeah. truly not interested and they really do want to keep it going because this is the way it's worked for 15 years, then I think you have your answer. But I would always, you know, again, they're your team. So try to communicate with them to right. get, I mean, more communication and more education is only going to benefit the patient. It's going to give you 100%. a lot of job satisfaction, but it's really going to benefit the patient. So 100%. all the things yeah. you're seeing are so key when we look at not only ECC, but pain management. I mean, anything we learn new at a conference that we want to take back and elevate the standard of care for our patients. Yeah. Something that I think that a lot of folks find frustrating in this arena is fear-free practices or low-stress handling techniques, cooperative veterinary care, right? This is another area where you'll get a lot of pushback. You'll learn about it in the practice. People will be raving about it, how amazing it is, how wonderful it is for patients, for staff, for everyone, right? Um, and you come back and talk about it and people are like, oh, that takes too much time. Oh, our clients will never go for it. Oh, we're never going to be able to do that. And it, that is, can be disheartening and it's difficult. And I hear that a lot. So these are, those are the two areas really that I hear a lot about having difficulty making change. Anesthesia and analgesia and patient handling techniques. And those are connected, right? Because it's oh, all about focusing on the patient's experience, which is, I feel like that's where we need to be focused, especially as technicians and assistants, we need to always be advocating for our patients and, and making sure that they're having the best experience that they can. That means low stress, low pain, as much as we can, we owe it to them to, to do that and to advocate for that. Oh, yes. I mean, I totally agree with you. I think one of the things now that I'm in relief and I go to a bunch of clinics um, and I have a wide variety of clinics, I think, you know, there there are some places where I'm sure this happens at a lot of veterinary clinics where a dog comes in with a torn nail. And yes, it probably would be a lot quicker just to hold that dog down and pull that nail. But if you think about, yeah, that's what's going to be best for me and my day and my flow. But that is going to set up, not only is it not going to be a great experience in the moment for that that animal, but then we're setting up, this animal is going to be terrified every time it comes into this building. Yep. It's just going to anticipate being held down by three people and its toenail yeah. torn off. Yeah. Um, so I think exactly, we have to look at things now from what is the best for this patient? Right. Um, and what I can we do to yeah. make this patient's experience the best? And to your point, right? you may bang your head against a wall. You may find a brick wall that you're banging your head against when you go to talk to management and ownership. If that is the case and you, your communication is falling on deaf ears or you're just hearing no constantly, then I do think that is the time that it, it's time to look for a new place, some place where you will be more of a part of the team than you are at that practice. Because I, like a team 
yes, the coach makes the decisions, right? They are the ultimate arbiter and the ultimate decision maker, but they have to take input from everyone on the team in order to make the best decisions and in order to use the team the most effectively. And if they're not willing to listen to all the parts of the team and put those ideas into into action, then I think the team isn't going to do well. And then you have to decide, like, at what point can you continue to try and improve the team? Or is it time to go into the, you know, transfer portal and find a new, <laughs> find yeah. a new team? Mm-hmm. I mean, luckily, you know, there's so many opportunities right now for veterinarians, <laughs> for veterinary staff, for assistants, for uh, veterinary technicians. I mean, I just know the the places that I relief at are hiring. I'm sure um, out in California, you guys are hiring everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. And, you know, and it's, it's, it is difficult, though, in places, there are places where there just aren't a lot of clinics to choose from, right? I was yeah. talking with a with a technician from South Dakota. And she's like, I, you know, I have their five clinics I can choose from where I live. And I get that, that, uh, that there's a difference in where you might live and what you can do where where you live too, in terms of both in terms of creating change and in terms of um, finding a new place to yeah. put your efforts. Uh, so I don't want to discount that. I know that a lot of people are probably listening and thinking, I can't, like, I have nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I have I to mean... push here. And then, okay, so what do you do when you're in that position where you don't want to leave your clinic or you can't because there aren't other opportunities and still you can't, you can't seem to break through with change? In those situations, that's where I just take it back again to the tiniest steps you can take, right? So if we think about it from a behavior perspective, I worked with Chirrups and Chatter. Yeah, Tabitha is fantastic. Amazing. And she helped me train my cat to take eye drops. And I was just trying to do it all in a chunk, right? But when we think about behavior... You know, and, and talking with her, she's a genius. Of course, Monica mm-hmm. Fairchild, Monique Fairchild is another one, right? Like who, who wrote Cooperative Veterinary Care, genius. You have to break it down into the tiniest, tiniest steps. So think about what it is you want to change, the big old hairy ass goal that you want, right? Your bohag, and then break it down into the tiniest steps you can. And then start with that first tiny step. Maybe the first tiny step is convincing your doctors to pre-oxygenate your patients, for example. Hey, we can just put the tube in front of their nose while we place an IV catheter. Would that be okay? No harm, no foul, right? Oxygen is, for the most part, a benign medication that we provide our patients. So, like, it doesn't take more than one person. The person holding the pet for the restraining for the IVC can hold the oxygen in front of the pet's face. No, No big deal. Can we try that and see how that goes with patients? Every little victory you have is going to build on the last victory until eventually you are going to be able to get to a point where you're going to be getting close to that big, to that bohag, right? Where you can, you can taste it. That's where you're going to start getting the most resistance, right? Is be, is, Mm -hmm. is when you start to make the big change, but you have built a whole road of positive outcomes, right? Because you tried pre-oxygenating your patients and they held their oxygen really well in surgery and you didn't have to bag a bunch of patients maybe, right? And then you used a laryngoscope 
And you're right. like, oh see, my that's gosh, the next I step. See. see, and that's the next step, right? And like, <laughs> like I will say, I bought laryngoscopes on eBay, I think. Like, they were cheap. So even if your practice won't buy them, you could buy one just to have, to try with, and then just ask, like, I'm going to use this laryngoscope. I mean, for me, I wouldn't even ask. I would just use it. And then if somebody oh, was like, why are you using that? <laughs> yep. They'd be like, why are you using that? I'd be like, well, look, I can see everything so much easier. And I am so much more efficient at intubating now than I was because I have a light and I have something that gets everything out of the way so that I can really visualize that airway. Or even better, you find pathology, right? You open the mouth to intubate and you put the laryngoscope in there and you're like, hey, doctor, there's a giant mass in the back of this animal's mouth or, you know, in the throat or whatever that wouldn't have been found otherwise. Those are the things, those small victories are the things that build you, that build your base so that you can then start working on bigger and bigger changes. But you have to build that base of trust, of success before you can get to that point. I think, especially if you're in a practice where, you don't have mobility. You, there's nowhere for you to go elsewhere or you're committed for another reason. You really want to stay and make things better and you're invested and you're willing to go through the tough parts of it to get to the good parts. And sometimes that can take a long time, which can be frustrating. But yeah, I, think. I try to tell people that, you know, be prepared. Yeah. You know, it could take a year. It could take more. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, that's I think depending realistic. on how busy, yeah, depending <laughs> on how busy you are, depending on how many surgical procedures you're doing, particularly in the area of anesthesia and analgesia, creating those changes could take a long time because you really do need those successes, right? You need to build, it's almost like building your reputation in the practice. Um, and I think that that is something, um, that is something that's a really interesting concept, actually, to think about, because you think you see these technicians and assistants who go into practices and they're like, why don't they see how awesome I am? Like, well, because you're new, like, <laughs> mm -hmm. you, like even even us with the VTS, like, yeah, we have all the skills and knowledge, but nobody knows us just because we have a VTS doesn't mean we're amazing and awesome. I'm, right? We have a lot of knowledge. We have a lot of skills. And we want to share those. We want them to be utilized. But you still have to build that reputation. And it's built on success, right? So mm -hmm. each little thing you advocate for when you have a positive outcome, that's a little notch in your belt, right? And then the next one is another notch. And in fact, if this is a, a place where you're really invested in, you want to stay, like keep track of what you're doing in those little wins so that when you go into your review or you go to make this bow hag, you know, this big old hairy ass goal proposal, you can say, look, I, I proposed this and we started doing this and here were the outcomes. And then I started doing this and these were the outcomes. And then I started like, I started using a laryngoscope and my intubation time went from five minutes to 90 seconds. Uh, and so like that is better for everybody. It's more efficient for the practice. It saves everybody time and money. It's better for the patient. You're not digging around, poking at their, their uh, larynx, their laryngeal folds constantly creating inflammation, all kinds of problems, post-op, right? Or pain or whatever, um, getting them on the table faster. Surgeons are happier, blah, 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 right? If you can keep track of that and then you have something to walk into your manager's office and be like, 
I have a track record of success. And this is something that I would like to work towards. Will you support me working towards this? But it can yeah. take a long time. <laughs> it can take a long time. No, but I like think that's a great idea to, you know, to keep track of it. I mean, not only it's going to make you feel good when you look back on all of your successes, uh, you know, but also I'm always advocating that technicians speak up for themselves wage wise. So it does give you a little bit of leverage when you're negotiating um, exactly. your salary. <laughs> exactly right. So, I mean, not only for changes that benefit your patients, right, but it yeah. will be for changes that benefit you. And then the other side of that is you turn around and you're lifting other people up behind you, right? Because you, everything, every little thing you improve makes things easier for the next person who wants to improve something. And sometimes it just takes one person who's willing to put themselves out there, you know, to be the person in the arena, as Brene Brown says, mm -hmm. and suffer the slings and arrows to create the change then it becomes easier for others that are coming behind you who want to make changes as well. And um, I think that's another key point that we haven't touched on as much is every time you make a change, you're making it easier for the next person who has an idea to make things better. And, um, and I think that's important too. Yeah, it is important. All right. Man, oh, so many things. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do. Vet I, med, you know what? Like, it's got its problems, like any family, right? That it's got some dysfunction. But at the end of the day, I love vet med and I can't imagine doing Me anything too. else. Me and too. so, you know, I think you and I and people like, you know, Darcy and Stephen and like all these people who are out here educating and want to do good things for the profession. Like we want to create these changes because we want the next generation of veterinary technicians and veterinary assistants and professionals to feel safe in making changes and advocating and that's to keep right. going forward and keep moving this whole thing forward and better, et cetera. That's right. That's right. And you're a part and of it, Liz. Thank you so much <laughs> so for you. not only being but a guest will, on the show. <laughs> I a plug out here too. If you are a manager listening to this and you want to encourage your staff to create change, to come to you with ideas, it's important that you make sure that your practice has a good foundation of psychological safety to make those things happen. And I would urge you to, um, there are people in the veterinary space working on this, like Josh Vaisman um, at Flourish Consulting, David Liss and Andrea Crabtree at Positive Leadership. There are people working on creating more psychological safety in practices. And when you have good psychological safety, people will come to you with changes. They will come to you with ideas for improvement, you will be more profitable, more productive, more efficient, and more successful. And that is something that I think is really, really important and kind of underpins this whole discussion of change and advocating for change. So practice managers, owners, if you're listening to this, and I hope you are, please look into, um, look into creating that culture and that safe psychological space for your folks. Oh, 100%. It makes a huge difference. Huge difference. All right, Liz, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to uh, hang thanks, out Tasha. with us uh, anesthesia nerds. And hopefully we are all going to go forth into our clinics and make some really great positive changes for our patients. We're our motivated. Motivated Yay! to create change. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, we Tasha. are. All right.
Thanks so much, Liz. We really enjoyed having you on the program. Um, for you guys listening, I can put links to um, some of the programs that Liz has talked about in the show notes. So be on the lookout for that. And as always, thank you so much for being anesthesia nerds and hanging out and listening to us ramble on about all things anesthesia and pain management. Bye.